Welcome back to another episode of the Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Robert Black, but you can call me The Professor. I'm known around this city for my blog, The Groundhog Day Project, two recently completed podcasts, Michael Myers Minute and Dave Made a Minute, and the audacity to take on The Room Minute next. It doesn't have to be about sex, of course. The nudity, I mean. Sometimes it's about vulnerability, intimacy. That this nudity is not particularly sexy means it ain't salacious, it ain't necessarily gratuitous. But it does serve one of the same purposes that a sex scene at this point in the plot would. It makes the femme fatale vulnerable, and it connects our quote-unquote hero to her. Ed will try to get out of her story a few more times, but we in the audience know. Never mind that we started the film with Ed, so obviously he's going to get involved. He's invested now. This is my final minute with you here at the end of the night minute. So I'd like to offer a couple things before I go, in addition to telling you what happens in this minute and what it means. I promised a little more about the femme fatale, so there's that. Also, I'd like to sum up, sort of, my take on the film as a whole. It's a little early in the film still, and I assume there are some odd people out there following this podcast who have never watched the film, so I don't want to spoil too much. First, we're looking into the bedroom in the Elvis image-laden apartment. Diana is on the bed. Her jeans are not yet zipped up. She's on the phone. Ed sits in the living room, a photo album open in front of him. I can't help myself by the four tops plays in the background. Diana says into the phone, just a second. She zips up the zipper on her jeans and she sits up, almost out of view. Angle on Ed. His attention is on the bedroom doorway, not the photo album. He's trying to listen to the phone call. Second six, we're inside the bedroom as Diana puts on her socks and Christy, a character we will meet later, answers. On the table by the bed, there's a purple ceramic elephant, what looks like a ceramic egg, a box of tissue, and... Okay, I could make out the wording and looked it up. It's a weird packaging thing that Excedrin was doing at the time. It's a tin can with a plastic lid like a short Pringles can, but inside is the normal bottle of extra strength Excedrin. The Conversation Christy, hello. Diana, Christy, Christy, die, where have you been? What's happening? Diana, uh, listen, um, I'm kind of in the middle of a real bad situation here. Christy, me too, we're gonna be out here all night. Diana, can I come over? Christy. Now, uh, let me talk to Bud. Diana. Chris, look, I need a friend, huh? It's serious. Christy. Yeah, come on over. I'll leave a drive on for you. Diana. Thanks. Second 31. Diana hangs up the phone and moves to put a sock that does not match the other one onto her left foot. Second 32 cut to close on a headshot of Diana slash Michelle Pfeiffer. To the right, two smaller photos, Pfeiffer in a graduation cap and gown, and Pfeiffer in a white blouse. Second 34, angle on Ed. Second 36, someone tries to open the door from the hallway, but the chain catches it. Ed turns. Second 37, 
close on chain as it stops the door a second time. And we can see up close one of the album covers on the inside of the door. Any way you want me, that's how I'll be. And love me tender. A collector series limited edition from RCA. Angle on Ed as he gets up. Charlie, from off screen. Open the f***ing door! Diana comes into frame from bottom right, headed for the door. Ed steps back out of her way. Like this situation wasn't weird enough. I mean, he doesn't know who's out there. It might be someone else trying to kill Diana. Someone there now to kill him, too. He might not realize he's in a film noir, but he surely sees Diana as the femme fatale she is in this moment. Dangerous. Alluring. Powerful. Seductive. Let us pause and go big. Marianne Doan explains in Femmes Fatales Feminism Film Theory Psychoanalysis, quote, The femme fatale is the figure of a certain discursive unease, a potential epistemological trauma. For her most striking characteristic, perhaps, is the fact that she never really is what she seems to be. She harbors a threat which is not entirely legible, predictable, or manageable. In thus transforming the threat of the woman into a secret, something which must be aggressively revealed, unmasked, discovered, the figure is fully compatible with the epistemological drive of narrative, the hermeneutic structuration of the classical text. Sexuality becomes the site of questions about what can and cannot be known. This imbrication of knowledge and sexuality of epistemophilia and scopophilia has crucial implications for the representation of sexual difference in a variety of discourses, literature, philosophy, psychoanalysis, the cinema, end quote. I could rightly define some of those big words for you, of course. I, I did get my master's in communication and studies, but with all of them up against each other like that, I'm not so sure I could explain everything I just read to you. Not without getting a lot more boring than I've been already. Though I think the general meaning is clear. But let's try something simpler. Catherine Fairmont, the contemporary femme fatale gender, genre, and American cinema. Quote, The femme fatale is one of the most enduring character types in Hollywood cinema. Despite her association with mystery and deception, a set of expectations frame the figure. The femme fatale is broadly understood through a combination of manipulative sexual allure and danger. Within that framework exists more complex appeals to notions of power, femininity, glamour, knowledge, nostalgia, death, monstrosity, and desire. End quote. Okay, now I'm speaking English again. The femme fatale resists clear definition, Fairmont says. The term is connected with sexuality, femininity, danger, violence, and deceit, but these connections are slippery. I've talked a lot in previous minutes about Los Angeles, about Hollywood, about dreamers moving here to make it big. And you got to remember how director John Landis has so many filmmakers cameo in this thing. These things are tied together in this film noir setup for a reason. Film noir is about the seduction into something dark. Los Angeles is this glitzy fantasy until you come here and you get your big break or you find the seedy underbelly. Or both. Fairmont says, quote, various aspects, a sexuality that is aggressive or threatening, ambition to improve her circumstances, uncertain morality or amorality, duplicity, a danger of death or downfall by association, persuasiveness, normative and highly constructed physical beauty, all hover around the term femme fatale, end quote. Cut the sexuality line out of the beginning of that, probably, and you've got any wannabe actor, every wannabe writer, every wannabe director, every wannabe model finding their way to the glitz and glamour of the City of Angels. Glamour is an especially good word for what you have in L.A. in Hollywood, like an old magic spell that looks attractive to everyone outside it. Los Angeles is an idea. Hollywood is an idea. In this minute, Diana's brother Charlie arrives home in L.A. to an apartment he no longer wants Diana staying in. He arrives notably dressed as Elvis. His apartment's walls are covered in images of Elvis. What is Elvis but an idea at this point? Hell, he was mostly an invention when he was young. Or at least his music was. 
According to Archie Loss in Pop Dreams, Music, Movies, and the Media in the 1960s, Sam Phillips had an entire group of artists at Sun Records that played a music style that mixed in varying degrees elements of blues and country. Elvis took source material that included R&B, gospel, and country, sometimes fused skillfully into a single mix. And Loss argues, quote, His very earliest recordings were an irresistible and highly original blend of these elements, end quote. Despite involving a lot of covers, I would add. By 1985, Elvis has gotten old, gotten fat, died. But Charlie's walls are covered with young Elvis, vibrant Elvis, and Charlie makes a living pretending at being Elvis. He's a performer. Diana has headshots and has friends in the industry. It's Los Angeles. Unless you're in one of the poorer neighborhoods we don't usually show to outsiders before they get here, you probably know some people in the industry. I play D&D with at least one. I go to board game nights with a bunch of others. My own daughter's been in a TV pilot and some short films. Los Angeles and Hollywood are inextricably linked, and in the imagination of the world at large, might as well be the same damn thing. Film noir draws on all of this. The shiny exterior. The shady underneath. The femme fatale, especially one like Diana who exists explicitly within the film industry, rides this wave of dreams into the mind of an unsuspecting male. Sometimes he's a cop, a P.I., someone who should know better. Here, it's taken to the furthest extreme. Ed is nobody. And he's so tired as to be sleepwalking, he never stood a chance. Half of one half is left on a third. I'm good with numbers, haven't you heard? I have to contract, I have lost everything. Just like the boxer dead on the ring. Twisted, the stars that will shine. thing from Marianne Doan before we get back to the minute at hand, and it's a long one. She writes, quote, In what does the deadliness of the femme fatale consist, and why is she so insistently a figure of fascination in the text of modernity? Her power is of a peculiar sort, insofar as it is usually not subject to her conscious will, hence appearing to blur the opposition between passivity and activity. 
She is an ambivalent figure because she is not the subject of power, but its carrier. The connotations of disease are appropriate here. Indeed, if the femme fatale over-represents the body, it is because she is attributed with the body, which is itself given agency independently of consciousness. In a sense, she has power despite herself. The evacuation of intention from her operations is fully consistent with the epistemological recognition accorded to the newly born psychoanalytic concept of the unconscious. The femme fatale is an articulation of fears surrounding the loss of stability and centrality of the self, the I, the ego. These anxieties appear quite explicitly in the process of her representation as castration anxiety. Virginia Allen has associated the femme fatale with that moment of abandonment in the sex act and the ensuing loss of self-awareness. The power accorded to the femme fatale is a function of fears linked to the notions of uncontrollable drives, the fading of subjectivity, and the loss of conscious agency. All themes of the emergent theories of psychoanalysis. But the femme fatale is situated as evil and is frequently punished or killed. Her textual eradication involves a desperate reassertion of control on the part of the threatened male subject. Hence, it would be a mistake to see her as some kind of heroine of modernity. She is not the subject of feminism, but a symptom of male fears about feminism. Nevertheless, the representation, like any representation, is not totally under the control of its producers, and once disseminated, comes to take on a life of its own. End quote. If you took into the night as some sort of thesis about men and women, and I have argued many a time in college papers, in my Groundhog Day Project blog, in my podcasts, that any film will tell you, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, what the filmmakers think about the world, about politics, about social structures, about gender roles, and you can usually pinpoint the release date for a given film based on how these things are talked about in the text. And I don't mean that characters talk about gender roles, but the film offers up men and women interacting, and whether it means to or not, it will say something about that interaction. Diana is the de facto femme fatale of this film, but she is not trying to seduce Ed. She is not particularly evil or necessarily dangerous. She represents an almost subconscious take on what a woman can be to a man in the mid-80s in America. Doan calls the femme fatale generally a symptom of male fears about feminism. This is the 1980s, the decade of big action films, big action stars, Rambo, McLean, Riggs, Rocky, Conan, Rakitansky, The Terminator, machismo and hypermasculinity as American hegemony flexing. Women enter this equation as sexual objects or damsels to be saved, whether or not they themselves also take up arms. Fairmont calls the term femme fatale an evocative rather than descriptive term, and that is an apt description. Like Los Angeles, like Hollywood, like noir, like Elvis. The femme fatale is an idea. And however much the femme fatale might be a driving force in a film like this, she is subject to the whims of the men around her. Like Diana's brother Charlie, who says, Open up, you bitch. Diana heads for the door. Ed follows, but not too close. Ed, friend of yours? Diana puts on a red leather jacket as she goes for the lock. Charlie, who's in there? Diana! Second 43, she shuts the door all the way to unhook the chain. Enter Charlie, Bruce McGill, dressed like Elvis in a tasseled white jumpsuit carrying a guitar case. He swings the door all the way open so hard it bounces off the table behind it and back to his hand. Behind him is Don, John Stephen Fink. But we won't really hear from him this minute. As Charlie eyes Ed, let us eye Charlie. Remember, I didn't see this movie in 1985, but even if I had, I wouldn't have known Bruce McGill. 
He'd been in a handful of movies, notably Animal House, The Hand. Actually, I did see The Hand, but I have no memory of how big a part he might have had in it. Tough Enough? Silkwood? I'd see all these movies later. I'd see him in Wildcats, Club Paradise, and No Mercy in 1986. And from 86 to 92, he'd play Jack Dalton in MacGyver, which I watched somewhat religiously. As young as he looks here, he feels like an unknown in this minute, even though I do recognize him now. Second 48, Angle on Ed as he looks Charlie up and down. Then Angle passed Ed on Charlie as he looks Ed up and down. Charlie, who is this? Looks like a narc. Second 52, Angle on Diana. Diana, he's a friend. Second 54, Angle on Charlie and Dawn. Charlie, to Dawn. She makes friends so easily. And there is so much to unpack in that line. But I've already said so much about Diana and Femmes Fatales that I think we get it. Later in the scene, we'll learn that she may have had sex with Elvis, which could make for some interesting psychoanalysis in terms of the dynamic between Diana and Charlie. But what matters here is that we know what Charlie thinks of his sister. And he clearly doesn't think highly of her. Second 56, Angle on Diana. Diana, what is your problem? Second 58, Angle on Charlie. And the argument to come with next week's host really gets started. Charlie, hey, I work for my money. He starts to say and, and he gestures at dawn, but the minute ends. So what is Into the Night? What is film noir? What is Hollywood? What is Los Angeles? It's whatever you want it to be. Until it tears you apart and makes it damn clear that it really isn't. That is all for Minute 30. Incidental Music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May, available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons share-like license. Once again, I'm Robert Black. Some folk call me the Professor. Check out lemmingdrops.com to see all the stuff I've been up to, including my latest podcast, The Room Minute. There are over 100 other Movies by Minutes podcasts available at moviesbyminutes.com, and many of them are quite good, so you should check them out. You can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at Night Minute on Twitter, or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category. Mm-hmm.